For the next two episodes of the Discover the Word podcast, we're going to be talking about something that will be part of your experience today a number of times, actually. In fact, it's part of your experience multiple times every day. We're going to be talking about food. Now, food can be a great part of life, but it's also something our guest for these conversations, Margaret Feinberg, says we definitely have a love-hate relationship with. We live in a world where there is so much conflict and pain when it comes to food. I know for me, food has been an area that I have struggled with. I remember being put on my first diet at the age of nine, and I know that I'm not the only one who has struggled with food. And so pull a chair up to the table and be part of the Discover the Word group for some conversations called Taste and See. And welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. Mark DeHaan, Elisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day, they are the regular group members who are welcoming author and speaker Margaret Feinberg to the conversations this time. Margaret has been here before, and so we enjoyed the spirit and the insight that she brought to our times together. We consider Margaret a good friend. And this time around, she's going to explore with us the invitation in Psalm 34 to taste and see that the Lord is good. And I think we're going to be amazed at how often food in the Bible is linked as a metaphor to our relationship with God. Margaret was. Well, I think it's interesting because if you start to look for food in the Bible, what you will discover is that it pops and sizzles on almost every page. And so she embarked on a global culinary and spiritual adventure to discover and to help us discover the truth that food in many ways is God's love made edible. Keep that idea in mind as we move forward. Okay, so let's get started as Mart and Elisa and Daniel welcome Margaret Feinberg back to Discover the Word. We've got our good friend, Margaret Feinberg, back with us. I've been looking forward to seeing you, Margaret. You say good friend. I'm looking forward to meeting her. (laughs) (laughs) So it's nice to meet you. Well, that's a nice thing. We get to share friends around this table. And uh, this topic that, Margaret, you're going to bring to us is making me hungry. It should. It should. (laughs) We're going to be talking about food for a few days. She's kind of a specialist at looking at a some kind of an element in scripture and looking at it deeply and bringing it forward into our lives. And so this time Mm -hmm. around, Taste and See is a book and Bible study that is just background for our conversations, but I think it's going to be really interesting to look at food and scripture. Yeah, I get the feel from you that as you research and read through the scriptures that you see God in ways that I do not tend to see him. Mm -hmm. And so I'm excited to learn from you in that way too. Because you don't like food, Daniel? I love food, but I don't usually (laughs) think of it as a spiritual experience. And uh, to think God and food can go together, this is an exciting program. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's good. Where do we want to go as we begin? Well, I think that one of the big ideas I know in my own journey is this idea that we live in a world where there is so much conflict and pain when it comes to food. I know for me, food has been an area that I have struggled with. I remember being put on my first diet at the age of nine, and I know that I'm not the only one who has struggled with food. I'm just curious, have any of you all ever just struggled in one way or another with a a messy relationship with food. And that's not just spilling it down your front. <laughs> okay. I think all of us are inclined to eat the wrong foods mm-hmm. and to pay a price for that. Mm-hmm. Or maybe eat too much of a certain food. I remember going on a grapefruit diet when I was 12 or 13. Now, no one put me on it. I decided that I should lose some weight. Mm-hmm. And so you had grapefruit and protein, basically. It was so silly, and I would just starve. It was tied to just... Not feeling good about myself. And I have to admit, I don't know that I really can relate to this question personally. I have a lot of people in my life that I know of who have struggled with whether it's weight or the types of food that they eat and trying to control that and then making mistakes in their diet and then feeling bad about themselves and then trying to control it more and all that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think for some, there's also food allergies. Mm -hmm. There's intolerances. 
all of those things can kind of feed in. And I know for me, I was at a place in my own personal journey when I just needed to pull back a chair from the table, so to speak, and take a fresh look Hmm. at food and really take it from more of a biblical perspective. What does God say about food? What do those themes look like when we start to look at the scripture? And what I began to see is I think that God has been redeeming food since the beginning of time. In the very beginning of Genesis, God laid out the creation, the garden, like a Zagat-rated buffet. Like a what? Zagat-rated buffet. (laughs) That's one of the the foodie reference, like reviewer, (laughs) the top reviewer, like this is a five-star fabulous restaurant kind of review. I mean, I imagine Adam and Eve walking through the garden and they didn't just walk and talk in the cool of the day. I think they noshed and they nibbled, that they ate their way through the garden with God. And that's a different portrait Hmm. of seeing God and how he provides food for us. See, I can relate to what you're describing because we have... Growing up in North Carolina, we have blackberries and we have oh. these wine raspberries and all that. And when those come in, the joy over my wife and yeah. I and our kids as we eat and eat and eat and eat those raspberries yeah. is just uh, it's awesome. Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My first thought, I, I was trying to figure out what in the world you're saying, but I'm kind of backing into it now because I know that eventually in Scripture, in fact, not too far down the road, you've got this meal that takes on great significance. Mm-hmm. And uh, a meal of remembrance, You're both for Israel, Passover, yeah. Passover, yeah, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. and later. So, mm-hmm. but you're saying even go back to the garden. You're picturing us sharing a food. Yeah, I mean, I think God could have made us that we were created that we ate stones or licked rocks in order to survive. <laughs> and instead he gives us tens of thousands of taste buds and receptors. And even in the garden, I mean, you think about Adam and Eve, even after a willful act of disobedience, which involved eating food, God doesn't push food to the side. He keeps using that food for his redemptive purposes. I mean, throughout the Old Testament, we see him using food in order to awaken people's heart to himself. I mean, when Jesus comes, he reveals himself as food stuff, the bread of life, the true vine, the anointed one, literally the one, the Messiah who is dripping in oil. And this continues just like you suggested in both the Passover and in in the communion all the way to Revelation 3.20. Daniel, would you be willing to read that for us? Yeah, sure. So this is Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you and eat with you and you with me. Think about that. He says, I am coming that we would share a meal. And that imagery, what does that unlock for you when you think about that? Some of the best times in life are mm-hmm. family times or times with mm-hmm. friends mm-hmm. and sitting around. And it's not just the food, though. It's what the food gives you a, a sense to share your lives, your memories, your laughter over yeah. things that have happened in the past. Mm-hmm. And I think what strikes me in this section is this is in this series of letters that he's writing to churches where he's reproving them, he's disciplining them. And yet the way Jesus does that is by showing up and eating a meal and spending time at the table with them. So it's not just a judgment from afar. He walks in to eat with them and uh, to love on them and build relationship with them. It's so intimate. Yeah. It's friendly. Friendly is a good word, Mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know mm-hmm. that I think of Jesus as friendly, but that's mm-hmm. exactly what he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was. I think that God is using food to reveal himself to us so often. Hmm. He is revealing himself as our provider, as our sustainer. For us to have food, we are reliant on a God who hung the stars, who spins the sun, who brings in the seasons, who provides the rain. And so with every bite, we are reminded that we are dependent on God. He is our provider. He is our sustainer. He is breathing new life and sustaining life into us with every bite. Okay. And from our point of view, then we're being brought back from something, right? So that's the idea that God, because of who he is, comes to us as we are and brings us back. And one of the ways he does it, you're saying, is through? Is through food. Mm. I'm thinking about, Margaret, how we began our chat and talking about a messy relationship with food, and you used an illustration of being told to be on a diet. And we talked about the control of food. It's threading through for me now as you're talking about God wanting to redeem food so that we understand our daily minute-to-minute dependence on him. Maybe what you're saying is a shift from our controlling food or food controlling us to Hmm. how would you phrase that? That food, in essence, is God's love made edible. Hmm. 
that if we learn to take mm-hmm. it in with gratitude, to recognize, to move from seeing food merely as commodity or fuel, but that every bite is a gift, an act of grace, of imbibing, of taking in God's provision, his goodness, his love, his faithfulness, that perhaps in that we can be a people who taste and see God's goodness. So you're sourcing it in God himself. So food connects us to our need for God. And it is interesting, and I think you've said this in some conversations, that we don't just eat once and we're done. You know, we have this constant mm-hmm. need to eat, which makes us remember a dependency. And he calls us forward to enjoy that in him. If somebody says, Mm -hmm. or if I'm saying, well, what about (laughs) the scripture that says, but we don't live by bread alone. Mm. I mean, that's a biggie in scripture. Mm. It is a biggie, but we also have to remember that Jesus came and revealed himself as the bread of life, as these very foodstuffs that I don't think that it was to tarnish or to push away food, but with, again, every bite drawing us closer to Christ, calling us into that awareness, that even in the food and the meals of remembrance, that when this whole shindig goes down, we are going to celebrate at the biggest, best banquet of all time. That is God's purpose and intention for us at the end of time, that we will gather and celebrate at a feast. How can we become more intentional about tasting part of that feast with one another as we gather around the tables in our own homes, as we make space and invite Christ to pull up a chair, to Mm. be with us, to reveal himself. Let's go back then to uh, Revelation 3 and that picture. Mm -hmm. What do you think we should be seeing there? You know, I think a lot of times when we think about that imagery of eating with God, I don't know about you, but often I get too busy and it feels like I'm more of a fast food consumer with God. I'm the person who's going through the fast food lane, ordering, eating, wrappers are on the back of the car. I'm sure I'm the only one that happens to, right? You guys are so Oh yeah, I have a nine, seven and five year old. There's no <laughs> trash or food in our car. <laughs> <laughs> or sticky areas. Yeah. You know, rather than in our relationship with God saying, I'm gonna go, park the car, get out of the car, go into the restaurant, sit down, order, and spend that time. And I think that reflection in our modern culture Mm -hmm. is one of a shift of, you know, what can I quick order from Grubhub and stuff down my throat versus what does it look like to really commune, to really sup, to really eat with God and be nourished by him. I guess I've seen a picture of this because my wife's Cuban. And so when we have family gatherings with her family, Mm. food is very much a central part of that experience. I mean, it is a big spread, Mm. but it's the community that happens at that table while we're enjoying amazing food Mm. that is most memorable to me. Um, I have a memory of a few Thanksgivings ago before we moved in separate directions. One sister moved to California, one ended up in Atlanta, one in Jacksonville, and then us up here And I can look back and remember right before that, there was this moment where all of us were together. Mm -hmm. The memories that were made, it was loud, Mm -hmm. so loud, Mm -hmm. but it was food. Food Mm -hmm. is what brought us together in that meal. Mm -hmm. And so all the memories that were built. Mm -hmm. And so I can see how food would be not only community building, but also redemptive as well, Mm -hmm. in that it can bring people together. Great start to our conversations with Margaret Feinberg on this episode of the Discover the Word podcast about how food can help us to understand our daily and actually minute-by-minute dependence upon the Lord. And I think we're going to find this is a fascinating series of conversations on these two episodes of the podcast about how in so many ways food is God's love made edible. That's a memorable line that I think will characterize this study called Taste and See. Well, you are at the table with Mark DeHaan, Elisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day, and our friend author Margaret Feinberg for this series about food and how often food really does show up in a lot of different ways as you read through the Bible. And next, they're going to talk about how often when we get together for a meal, well, food is obviously an important part of that, but food isn't the only thing that we're hungry for. Let's listen. I have always been hungry ever since I was a little girl. (laughs) Maybe you two know what it feels like to always feel hungry. Hungry for food, hungry for seconds, hungry for an extra scoop of that amazing frozen dessert. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. 
But what I found is that often when mm. I think that when we gather around a table that we are hungry for more than the appetizer, the entree, or the dessert. Mm. When we gather around a table, we are hungry to know and to be known, to love and to be loved, mm. to enter a place where it is safe, just like at this table, and any sense of shame scurries away. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, when you gather at a table, what are you truly hungry for? I think it depends on what's in front of me. If it's barbecue, I don't care if anybody's there. (laughs) I'm just going to enjoy it. Um, And sometimes with my kids, my wife and I have talked about how we try to get them to slow down and actually enjoy sitting there because they tend to just consume and then can I have more and consume and not be thankful and build that community. But to your point, I think there's been also many times where The food doesn't matter. It's the people that we're with. I know when I have just coffee with a friend, it's Mm -hmm. the friendship that's more important. Or if I have a meal with a friend at home, things are so routine. I was kind of thinking, you're going, (laughs) there's a lot of spirituality in what you're saying, and it's probably ultimately true, but we probably don't live that way. Right. And you know what's funny thing that's coming into my mind is the awkward tables I've sat at. Hmm. Where, yeah, I think, Margaret, you're right. I came in hoping to feel, well, like I wasn't going to mess up. I can remember just being on pins and needles. My parents were divorced, and my dad would come pick us up like once or twice a year, fly in and take us out to a steak restaurant. Hmm. I'm just a little girl, and I'm trying to saw my steak and be good. Hmm. So while we may yearn for connection, and I sure did, there can be really uncomfortable times Mm. around a table, too. Contrasting with that, let me ask you guys, what is one of your most memorable meals? Mm. I know when my dad was, his health was failing, I remember the last meal that I remember with him and some of the comments that he made at that meal. I think it was a Thanksgiving, though. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the food, it was the occasion. And even some of the other meals that come to mind right now, it's related not so much to the food as to what was happening in our lives at that time. And I think, you know, contrasting to the painful memories I have with my father, I remember when my parents were newly divorced, my mother would try really hard to make birthday dinners special. And we lived in the Bay Area near San Francisco. It was a long time ago, kids, okay? Mm. But (laughs) she could get for like a dollar, she could get a crab and shrimp and avocados. And she would make this feast and artichokes. She would make this feast. And that was kind of weird as an eight-year-old to like those foods, Mm. but I did. And in our little small budget, because it was local, she could create up this feast. But I felt loved Mm -hmm. in those moments. You know, I recently had one of my most memorable meals, and it was actually in Israel. Mm. I'd gone over to do some research about food in the Bible and was invited by a family to extend my stay and actually celebrate the Passover with them. So we gathered around the table and we went through the Mm. entire Passover meal, you know, with a Jewish family and all of the readings. And there were things to drink. There were things to eat. There was the salty and the bitter and all these representative foods. But I remember at the end of the night, you know, the kids went out and they looked for the hidden um, matzah, which is part of that Passover meal. And whoever got it got to ask for the one thing that they wanted. And and so the child who found the matzah, of course, asked for money. And I thought, that is a smart kid. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember after the kids cleared out and went out to play at the end of the evening, I'm sitting there at this long banquet table. And the grandmother, Vered, she came to me and she looked at me and she goes, Marguerite, do you know why we do this? And I was like, oh, because it's the Passover. And she points at the empty chairs of the children and she goes, we do this so they must know where we come from. This is our story from slavery to freedom. Hmm. And as she was talking, I took a huge breath because I realized that in the Passover story, it is their story that they're reliving through every sense, tasting and seeing and experiencing and singing that journey of slavery to freedom. But I also recognize that in my own life, there has been that transition that has happened and is ongoing of moving from slavery to freedom through the joy and the privilege of following and knowing Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Where in your guys' life have you ever kind of experienced or encountered maybe that journey from slavery to freedom? Yeah, I think for me, growing up in a pretty conservative background in a very conservative church. And uh, I think I just kind of internalized that there was a lot of things I had to do to make God happy with me, to please him, to perform so that I would be accepted. And 
So I think for me, the journey has been moving past this pressure to make God love me more to realizing that I'm already loved by God. And so that's been my journey that I would describe as still ongoing as well, (laughs) of moving from a version of slavery to freedom. I wonder how typical that is, because I really relate to that, Daniel. I was so enslaved to a small, narrow God. Hmm. And I could use all the right words, the right language. And I could read, you know, when Paul talks about a God, praying that his readers would understand the height, the depth, the breadth of the love of God. And then you read John toward the end of his life, and he's just consumed by the one thing that Jesus said is important. Mm -hmm. Love one another as I've loved you. Mm. And to the extent that I feel like I've been led and brought into that, there's a freedom that is life-giving. God's love is not narrow. It's not small. It's not reserved for just a few of us. And... uh, I'm trying to fit that into food. (laughs) 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 I think what you described of that Jewish meal and their way of telling the story in that Mm -hmm. meal once a year, I don't know that, you know, we have what we call the Lord's table, but but they've created a liturgy and a narrative that engages the family and the kids and everybody. It's beautiful. Yeah, and I think what struck me in just your description is we still know people that come out of the World War II generation where when they say, don't forget, it's because they experienced it. Mm -hmm. And this grandma seems to have expressed it as if she experienced it. But the only way that that's true for her is if that legacy of passing along this meal was so real to her as a little girl. Mm -hmm. And then as she grew up, where she does feel like as if she has experienced it and is passing it down. Mm. I'm struck, Mart, by what you're saying that would that we could experience the Lord's table hmm. the way our Jewish friends experience the Passover, because that is the expression of the freedom, you know, that Jesus talks about all through scripture. Yeah. He came to set us free from sin, that we're not enslaved anymore. And I'm not trying to diminish this. It's very significant in our churches, but I long for that true experience of the mm-hmm. freedom mm-hmm. that that table represents. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. You know, it's so interesting that Jesus, again, as part of the communion, as part of the Eucharist, as part of that meal, he is the bread of life. He is the true vine. And he is the very elements that are broken, that are poured out. And it is an invitation, I think, when we come to that meal for a journey from slavery to freedom. I mean, John 8.36 says, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that when we come to the table, that when we engage, when we encounter Christ, his goal for us is not more bondage, more slavery, more weight, more burden, but it is freedom that we would be liberated from that, which holds us back, I think, from being our true selves who Christ has called us to be, that holds us back from engaging more fully with God, that he is always there and always present in that Mm -hmm. journey to the freedom that he wants to bring to us. Yeah, and that verse, the context of that verse fits contextually very well with, Mart, what you and I were Mm. (laughs) describing, Mm -hmm. because in that section, John is describing two different schools of thought. Abraham's our father, and then Jesus saying that, no, there's this bigger picture Mm. that I want you to see, Mm -hmm. which is this freedom that God offers, and ultimately, he offers that through me. Mm -hmm. And so they were still very much stuck in this legalism, the law, trying to follow it to keep God happy and please him. And Jesus comes and the freedom that he's offering them is, no, there's something greater here than the law of Moses that you follow as a child of Abraham. And that's finding your freedom through me, which is the freedom that God has for you. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most amazing things is that this journey is not made alone, whether Mm -hmm. it is in the story of the Passover, whether it is at the table of communion, that we do it within community, that as each of us takes steps in discovering the freedom that is found in Christ, we share that freedom that is contagious with others until all of us collectively become more free in the person of Jesus. getting a fresh, heavenly perspective on food as we see it in the story of the scriptures in this series with Margaret Feinberg here on the Discover the Word podcast called Taste and See.
And we will continue with a conversation about how date palms and their fruit can give us hope for the future. Yeah, you heard me right. Dates and eternal life. (laughs) That, after this quick word about Margaret's book, that can take you even further into this topic of finding how food is part of the story of the Bible and our story. Well, if these conversations with Margaret Feinberg are making you hungry for more about this subject, then I think you'll also enjoy reading Margaret's book, Taste and See, Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh Food Makers. It served as the basis for this series of conversations we're having. Because, you know, we all get hungry for food every day, several times a day. But as humans, we also hunger for so many things that extend beyond our physical appetite. We long for meaning and purpose, to know that God cares and that details of our lives really do matter. And in her book, Margaret explains that food was created not just to satisfy our hunger, but to create a place where God could meet us and fill our hearts. So I invite you to order a copy of Margaret's book, Taste and See, at your favorite online bookseller, or you can simply click on the link when you visit our website this week at discovertheword.org. And if you're going to use a search, uh, look for Taste and See by Margaret Feinberg, and it's spelled F-E-I-N-B-E-R-G. And now Margaret points us to a fruit that you may or may not be all that familiar with, but one that is part of a number of important passages in the Bible. Ever since I was a little girl, I have loved fruit. I mean, Mm. I think that I could eat fruit for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and every snack in between. You give me some fresh berries, and I am all about it. Oh, yeah, me too. What is your guys' favorite fruits? Mm. I eat an awful lot of apples. Do you really? Yeah, honey crisp apples are the best apples. Yes. And I got to be honest, I'm a veggie freak. Mm. I like vegetables so much better than fruit. So I'm kind of weird. Yeah. Even a tomato? That's, I mean, technically. Okay, we'll do that. Okay, a, t- a tomato yeah. would fit. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to uh, push back on Mart's comment. I think Rome apples might be better oh, okay. than Honeycrisp. No. <laughs> okay, all right. I'll try it out. Um, yeah. But I think my favorite fruit would be berries in general, but specifically mm-hmm. blackberries. And mm-hmm. just growing up picking them mm-hmm. all the time in Western North Carolina. I just, yeah. I love blackberries. Mm-hmm. I did too. We had an old blackberry patch mm-hmm. that we loved. And raspberries. Yeah. Some rows of raspberries that were wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because if you start to look for food in the Bible, what you will discover is that it pops and sizzles on almost every page. And if you start to look for fruit, you will see so many mentions of them. But I think one interesting one comes on that day that Jesus enters Jerusalem. Daniel, would you be willing to open that up for us, that passage when he's entering in and, and he's coming in for Passover shortly before his arrest and his betrayal? Yeah, I'll start uh, John chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. It's an amazing moment. And what I think is really fascinating is they were there, and and the scripture says that it was with palm branches. But what I never knew until I started to really dive into food in the Bible was that whenever you see palm branches or palm trees in the Bible, it is always referring to the type of palm that is the date palm. Hmm. And so, in fact, they were holding date palm branches in their hands. And that becomes significant because the date in antiquity was always symbolic of life. And in particular, dates symbolized more pointedly victory over death. Whoa. And so when Jesus came in riding on the donkey on that day, literally the people were waving him in Mm. with the symbols of victory over death, life over death. What's amazing is that this imagery of the date palm in scripture, it's not just when Christ enters into Jerusalem. We see it again in Revelation 7, 9. Daniel, would you read that for us? Yeah. So 
in context, this is when all of the nations come before the throne of God in Revelation, and people of every walk and every nation and every race are there before God, and this is what it says. After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. Mm. Mm. What a picture of life. From Mm -hmm. death. Yeah, from death. Mm -hmm. The ultimate portrait. Yeah. And so I think one of the questions becomes for us as we think about Christ entering into our own hearts and that invitation Mm -hmm. we have that, you know, if you're listening and maybe you've never considered making Jesus the king of your life, the Lord of your life, that you have the opportunity to do that. And when he comes in, he is coming in to push back death Mm -hmm. and to bring in life. Mm -hmm. Where have you guys experienced Mm -hmm. that sense of Christ's victory that he is the one who brings life over death into your own lives? You know, it's interesting. We spend time, Evan and I, sometimes in Palm Springs, California. Mm -hmm. And I'd never even really heard of a date palm tree. Mm -hmm. But they're everywhere there. And especially in the winter months, they drop their dates. And you'll come up to a a stop sign or a stoplight, and they're deep in the ditches and deep in the, what do you call it, the gutters. And it's amazing, this image now that you've given me of what Jesus came to give us, moving us from death to life. And I think, to your question, it seems to me that where I've experienced something that that I think is expressive of life over death, it always comes in unexpected ways or in ways that I never would have asked for. Hmm. And I think that's what was happening in Jerusalem. You know, they thought the Messiah, after all these centuries, was finally coming, finally there. I've tried recently to put myself in the crowd, feel the exhilaration, the wonder, you know. Of of, this moment. Of that moment Mm -hmm. of coming into Jerusalem, the Messiah. They'd heard the rumors. They'd heard about the miracles. There was reason to believe it. And then a few days later, he's dead. And it's out of that death comes life. But it was totally unlike anything that that crowd ever would have imagined. And in my life, my experience of that life has come out of moments where I just absolutely taken to the end of myself. Hmm. You know, it's like my hopes are broken. The things that I tried to do or that I thought I could do, I couldn't do it. Hmm. And it's in those moments that I think I've learned to hope and to trust and just to be honest and say, I can't do it. If you don't do it for me, hmm. if you don't help us, we're sunk. And then to be able to look back sometime later and say, it happened. Mm -hmm. And you know what I love that you're honest about is you just said the words to be able to look back some time later. Yeah. It's really hard for this to be instantaneous. Right. And here, as we're reading this description in scripture, we're talking in several weeks, you know, of of this process. And that's, we kind of forget that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not only that, but when Jesus did rise, you know, we see in Acts, he's risen, he's introduced himself to people again. And then his disciples turn to him and say, okay, now is the time where you're going to take over and rule. So even at that point, they still had this picture Mm -hmm. of what they Mm -hmm. thought the Messiah would be. As do we. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so not only did Jesus die to bring life, but ultimately the disciples had to allow that expectation of what they thought the Messiah would be to die so that they could experience the Messiah that was so much better than anything that they had pictured. One question that I'm kind of stuck on the palm branches. So how do we know they're date palms? Is it just because that's what grows there? It is. It's what grows there. So around the world, there's actually, I believe, several thousand types of different palm trees. I always thought of, you know, those tall, beautiful trees down on the streets in LA. I thought of the coconut palm that I grew up Mm -hmm. with in my Florida roots. Mm -hmm. I thought of these, and I did not realize that the palm trees in Israel are date date palms. palms. Mm -hmm. And to this day they are. And to this day yeah. they are. So talk again about the symbolism is what, just describe that one more time. Yeah, the symbolism of a palm in antiquity was one in the ancient world where date symbolized life and more specifically victory over death. What does that mean? I recognize in my own life that there are areas where I still need life, that I am still maybe wrestling with death, not truly living. I know a few years ago, I had a vicious battle with a very aggressive form of cancer. Mm -hmm. And even though physically I survived that, emotionally and mentally, I feel like I am the one who is still in the tomb 
that the resurrected Christ still has to, I even picture this in my imagination, mm-hmm. come into me and to begin unwrapping those grave clothes, those thoughts, that limitation, the fear of death, the fear of pain, the fear of the cancer coming back, the limitations that so gripped me during that time that he is still peeling those back. Mm -hmm. But as the Lord and Savior, that is what he does. He says, those things that have tied you down, that have held you back, that have caused you so much pain, you don't have to live that way. Mm. So if somebody says, what do you mean you don't have to live that way? Why don't you have to live that way? You know, I think there's been this great awkward that entered our world when sin entered our world. And if you don't think that sin has entered our world, all I would challenge you to do is look at two two two-year-olds (laughs) battling it out over a small plastic car. It is amazing what they will do to each other. (laughs) And as we grow older, we find that that nature is still in us and that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to live, die, and be resurrected, that all of that awkwardness could be wiped away. And in that awkwardness, we ascribe to so many beliefs that are not true, just false beliefs about who we are and things that are negative and harmful. And sometimes if left unchecked, we start spewing those things out on other people. We've all been in those relationships with people where we're like, I can't believe they said that. I can't believe they did that. Not realizing that that nature is in ours too. And I think that Christ came to liberate us from that, to to set us free from that so that we would look more like him, that we'd be people who embody love and grace and joy and peace and thankfulness that is and embodies the person of Jesus Christ and what he has and is doing in us. Mm. And if that sounds too theoretical or too spiritual, remember the date palm, right? As you taste the sweetness of the date, we can taste the sweetness of the victory we have through Christ. Which is just as real as the date. Yeah. Yeah, Great conversation in that segment about dates, of all things, helping us understand the victory that we have in Christ. Jesus triumphed over death, and you can too. And as we close that conversation, they kept talking about dates and how delicious they actually are. And so listen, you might want to give dates from the date palm a try if you never have. If you buy fresh dates, and you can usually find them at a local grocer, pop them in the freezer, let them freeze, and then just pull them out and put them on a plate and serve them. They do it all the time in Israel, Mm -hmm. but they are sweet and delicious and absolutely magnificent. And Uh. the date palm shake is a big deal in Southern California, the date palm milkshake. Yeah, that sounds really good. I would like to try that. Well, this conversation, Taste and See, continues now with a focus on olives and olive oil and the way it's oft connected with healing in the Bible. Margaret will talk about her trip to Croatia and the experience she had there harvesting olives and how that's influenced her understanding of passages in the Bible where olives are mentioned. One of the things that looking at food in the Bible has really done for me has made me pause and look at my own kitchen cabinets to think about what are the element foods that I use to cook with. And one of the things I notice is it is hard for me to make a meal without oil. Mm-hmm. How about you guys? Bart? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm into good fats, all right? <laughs> olive oil. We use a lot of coconut oil or olive oh. oil. Those are our two. Sometimes avocado oil. Yeah, when we're not using butter, because I am from the South. There you go. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Okay. Well, it's interesting because in researching, I actually traveled to look at food in the Bible. I actually went and brought in an olive harvest in Croatia. Because as I started to look at food in the Bible, I realized that one of the predominant foods that emerges is olive oil. And I realized living in the United States, I knew nothing about olive oil other than what you know Rachel Ray and the Food Network told me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I found a family who lived so remote on an island, Havar, in Croatia, that they didn't even have running water. And so we went and spent about four or five days helping them bring in their olive harvest, waking up early in the morning, driving way back to the few trees they own on a particular hillside, and having to learn how do you pick olives by hand. I mean, this is 
old school, no machinery, no mass technology. And uh, the mama there, she taught me that you reach up the olive branch and you kind of massage it until the olives drop into a white container that you have. And you keep a tarp underneath Mm. in case any of them miss. And that way you don't lose a single olive because everyone is so incredibly precious. And I'll just Mm. be honest, when you are picking olives for 10 hour days, you just start to hurt your shoulders, your back muscles, your arms. And you also start to scrape yourself because the nature of just brushing up against the limbs. And I remember I'd come home so exhausted and tired. And yet when I looked at my hands, it appeared like I had been at a world-class spa every day. What do you mean? They were smooth and they were silky and they were just lush, just like they'd been soaking in the finest oils. And in fact, they have. And that's when I realized that when it comes to olive oil, God made the olive and its oil so that it contains antibacterial, anti-inflammatory properties as well as antioxidants. That when you start to look at olive oil, the healing properties are embedded in. Hmm. So why don't we just slap olive oil all over our bodies? Well, if you live in Croatia, <laughs> you will. Oh, really? It is part of their beauty regimen. That expensive? No. Mm-hmm. And the women—I mean, that's what they use for lotion. They'll put uh-huh. it all over their hands, their faces, at night before they go to sleep, because of the restorative qualities. Wow. And I think this is significant when we come to the scripture because what we see time and time again are these mentions of olive oil. So for instance, in the Old Testament, it was the kings and the priests when they were appointed that they were anointed with olive oil. It was literally pouring the olive oil all over the head. It would drip down their faces, onto their chins and their beards, onto their bellies. How do we know that? Well, I immediately think of Psalm 133, which uses it as a picture of unity. It says, blessed are brothers when they live together in unity. It's like the oil on Aaron's head flowing down his beard and dripping off. It does say that, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Okay. When I'm thinking of Mary of Bethany anointed Jesus, his head, it seems to be a customary. It's probably not that important. I was just thinking of a few drops, but uh-huh. you've got a rich, uh-huh. it's a rich generous yes. anointing. Yeah, and to think that those were the people who in many ways were appointed by God in order to bring healing to the land Mm -hmm. and healing to the people's hearts. And then you have Jesus who comes, who reveals himself as the Messiah, meaning the anointed one, the one who, again, I imagine just dripping with olive oil. Mm -hmm. And on the night of his arrest, where does he go? The Garden of Gethsemane, Mm -hmm. where just as olives in a press, those two round stones, as they writhe and they wrestle under the pressure, the oil drips out. Here's Christ, the anointed one who is writhing and wrestling under the pressure of, he knows what is to come, the cross is to come, and blood literally drips from him. Mm. And yet in that place, he says, not my will, but yours be done. Mm. And he gets up and he walks to the cross and he endures that brutal torture and then rises again three days later with healing in his wings. And I think when we start to look at both the imagery of olive oil, but the practical of olive oil, we see this imagery of healing coming time and time again, which I think starts to open up mm-hmm. that passage in James five fourteen. Daniel, would you be up for reading that? Sure. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And we know in the Mediterranean that would be olive oil. Mm -hmm. That was the predominant Mm -hmm. oil throughout the region. And yet when we read this act, I'll be honest, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I struggle with this. Mm -hmm. It feels awkward sometimes in modern times to be the one who says, will you anoint me and pray for me? Do you guys struggle Mm -hmm. with that at all? I think I struggle with it because I remember the church that I grew up in practicing this, but a lot of those people not being healed. Mm-hmm. There's an element, and our church does it too, but in the best sense of the words, when I have received it, I can feel the sincerity mm-hmm. of the prayer offered in a faithful way, and mm-hmm. it is a bit of a balm to my neediness. And I may doubt, and I may struggle, mm-hmm. and I may not see the healing that I had hoped yeah. for, but I appreciate the sincerity of the prayer. Yeah, that's a great point. Feeling like God is present and there, and we are in his hands, even if it might not work out the way and we expect. maybe a bit of yielding, hmm. because it's so physical. And it does represent the Holy Spirit, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. So it's probably a physical expression. It's sensory. 
you're feeling it. It is a balm. And at the same time, it's a reminder that with all of our prayers, we are basically asking for the Spirit of God to come and to restore us, to heal us, to give us what we need spiritually and physically as well. It's probably the spirit in which it's done and understanding what it represents. It's not just the oil. Mar, at the same time, that's God's touch. He knows we're not just spirit. He knows we're physical beings. We're yeah. bound on this planet in these bodies. Right. You know, and so the physical element of food, oil in this situation in James 5.14, the physical element ties us to a spiritual understanding. Yeah. But it's not a magical potion. Yeah. I yes. mean, it's something, like you say, material, physical, made by God mm-hmm. yeah. for our health, but it represents and it points us back to the source. Yeah. of that health. And I think in my own life, what I've started to recognize is that it's hard, especially in the areas of disappointment and in loss and in pain, to go back and say, God, but will you heal? Being in that place where maybe I live in chronic pain um, with lymphedema and saying, okay, I've asked you 10,000 times, will you heal this? Are we really going to do mm-hmm. this 10,001? Mm-hmm. And yet recognizing that in responding to this passage in James 5.14, that sometimes even when I ask God for healing in one area and I don't receive it, it doesn't mean that he's not healing me in 10,000 other ways. Mm-hmm. And there's a way in which we need to wake up to that. We've talked in other conversations about the freedom that Christ came to give us. And we choose, oh, no. And so it's like we miss the freedom. We'll miss the healing that might come in an area that we didn't identify as our top need, but God knows we need, you know, maybe I'm selfish and, you know, I want to handle the remote control and call all the decisions in my family and whatever else. And God wants to heal me of that. But I'm asking for something else. You know, he's so gentle and loving Mm -hmm. that he woos us towards more than what we could imagine that he wants to give us. We started these conversations talking about the redemptive nature of food in the Bible. Hmm. And it almost seems like this is one of the best examples of that because oil throughout the Bible is used over and over again to represent exactly what you were describing, Mark, the Holy Spirit's presence on the priests Mm -hmm. who are a part of that process of showing the Israelites you can't do it on your own. And there's a Messiah coming, right? Which is what they were pointing forward Mm -hmm. to. And then you had the kings who were anointed that represent another aspect of who Jesus was, yeah. uh, this ruler, the one through whom we have victory, like we talked about in our last conversation. And now we see this anointing coming to all people. And that representation of the Holy Spirit, as you're saying, Elisa, healing maybe areas that we didn't even realize we're asking for healing for, or we don't have the perspective to ask for. Mm-hmm. And God heals that. And yet we see this redemptive nature of oil going throughout the whole Bible as it ultimately points us to Jesus and the Holy Spirit through whom we have ultimate healing. And so maybe the next time we find ourselves in the kitchen reaching for that bottle of olive (laughs) oil, we touch it and we ask once again, whether it's the 10,000th or the 10,000th and once time, God, will you heal me? And be expectant of how he will answer. As the taste and smell and smooth texture of that olive oil fills your senses, hopefully you'll be reminded of what we talked about here on Discover the Word as you experience God's healing touch. Well, we will stick with olives for one more segment to wrap up this first part of our study called Taste and See. Mart and Elisa and Daniel and our friend Margaret Feinberg will talk about how the olive trees that surrounded Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane can teach us a valuable lesson about forgiveness. All right, that part of the conversation in just a moment. And as we come down toward the close of this episode, just I want to drop in a reminder about the special project that we've taken on as the Discover the Word family. Our friend and co-worker here at Our Daily Bread Ministries, Dr. Jack Beck, will, Lord willing, be going over to Israel with our film crew to record the material for the fourth and final season of the Holy Land video series. They plan to go later this fall. Now, these videos are Jack at his best, interacting with the geography and the people of the regions of the world in which the biblical story took place. 
In the times he's been with us here on Discover the Word, he's really changed how we read the Bible. And this video series has done that for so many as well. The observation I hear most often when I'm in Israel, people will say to me, man, this has completely changed the way I read my Bible. I'm seeing geography I never saw there before. And so it's my hope that as people have the opportunity to engage this video series, they will be changed as Bible readers. And so to help with the costs that are associated with this production trip in the fall, we're rallying the Discover the Word group of listeners to pitch in and help. And so if you'd like to partner with us financially to make season four of The Holy Land with Jack Beck happen, go to our discovertheword.org website and click donate. All the funds collected there now through the end of June will go toward this project. Again, go to discovertheword.org and click donate. In that last segment of this Taste and See study, uh, Margaret began to reveal to us some of what she's been learning about a common food mentioned in the Bible, olives and olive oil. And so let's pick up the conversation as she gets the group to talk about some of the fun that they've had with olives. When I was a little girl, one of my favorite parts about Thanksgiving was that was when my mom would bring out this big bowl of black olives. Mm. And I remember taking them and popping them on each finger and doing a little puppet show. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like the one time you could play with food. I know, right? So fun. Oh, green ones. I'd suck out the pimento and then stick them Mm. on. Yeah. (laughs) I never thought to do that. And then it would be finger puppet time. Yeah, I loved that. I do not like olives. Now, I did used to put those little butter cookies on my fingers before I ate those. But um, (laughs) yeah, I've never been a big fan of olives. I'm the guy that takes them off as pizza. Really? Oh, you're kidding. I love yeah. I love them too, yeah. but I tell you, you either love them or you don't, I guess. I think you're right. Yeah. You know, for me, I've always loved them. And I think that's one of the reasons that I started to look and study olives in the Bible. Uh, we shared in the last program, even traveled to Croatia to bring in an olive harvest. And I started to notice just some details about the way that God designed an olive tree that really left me in awe. One of them is just the simple fact that if you look at an olive leaf, that it contains tiny hairs around their pores that shape themselves in such a way that they can actually accommodate the weather because those little tiny Hmm. hairs that are there will signal to the leaf to open flat in the moist season and curl inward during the dry spells, which is why you can drive by the same olive tree. And one month or one day, you'll see it's, you know, bright green sea leaves. And on the next, it'll be gray slate color. What? How amazing is our God? Oh, it's so detailed. That Hmm. he would embed that kind of detail and that kind Hmm. of care. But I think it's in looking at the olive and studying it that I think that some of the passages of the Bible can come alive in a whole new way. Hmm. I think one of the most fascinating things is that all the Gospels record that when Jesus could have gone anywhere on the night of his arrest, he chooses the Mount of Olives. In that passage in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39 through 44, would you be willing to read that? Okay, this is uh, Jesus praying at the Mount of Olives, right? Verse 39 says, Then accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went as usual to the Mount of Olives. There he told them, Pray that you will not give in to temptation. He walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. And then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. Verse 44 says, And then he prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. It's amazing. All the places to go, he goes to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a place where olive trees grow, but it's not just where they grow, it's also where they are pressed. Gethsemane meaning the olive yard of the pressing of oil. And so at times it's it's referred to, the Garden of Gethsemane is referred to as the Garden of the Olive Press. Yeah. And so why was a press and the olive tree so close together? It was simply ease of transportation. Last year I went and I traveled to Israel and actually went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Have you guys ever 
been there. I haven't. Yeah, okay. I have. It's an extraordinary place. But some of the tour guides will tell you that they estimate that a couple of those trees may have even been there during the life of Christ. What? Mm. Right? 2,000 years old? I'm a skeptic. Yeah. Yeah, and I thought, how is that even possible? How does a tree live to be thousands of years old? Well, it turns out that even if an olive tree is neglected, even if it's ignored, even if it's left unwatered, even if it becomes so overgrown that it can't produce fruit, that if someone will come along and add water and fertilizer and prune back the branches, that that tree will come alive again. Uh. Is that a kind of dormancy? It's the ability that even in that dead, crusty looking Mm. outer shell, there is still Mm. life inside. Mm. And I think what incredible imagery Mm. that it brings to the text, that it brings to the understanding of olives in the Bible, that it illuminates about Jesus, Mm -hmm. whose name is Messiah, who means the anointed one, that Mm. begins to come out of that. And the fact that those olives in harvest are crushed to get the oil, and that's really the picture, isn't it, of him suffering under the weight of the moment. And it is interesting, and I know that all four Gospels talk about Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane, and I think it's interesting in the translation that you read from Mart, is that he went as usual or something. So this was a place where, I mean, I appreciate what you're saying, of all the places he could go, but it was a habitual place where Jesus went to meet with the disciples, specifically chosen, probably because Mm -hmm. of what you're saying, the imagery really reflects this beautiful connection to the anointing of the olives. He lived his life in anticipation of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, my translation says, as was his custom, which makes a lot of sense, right? Because that's where Judas leads them to find him. And Judas would know because this is the place they always go. Yeah. When I was in Croatia, I remember asking my hostess, Natalia, I said, how is it possible that an olive tree can live thousands of years? And she looked at me as somebody who in her family has raised olive trees for generation after generation. And she said, the reason an olive tree can live so long is because it's very forgiving. (laughs) Wow. So when she said the tree is forgiving, she meant by that the tree forgives not being watered? Is that the idea of being neglected? Yes. The hard times? It means people like me, if they're the gardener, yeah. <laughs> the tree still lives somehow. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting phraseology. Yeah. I think it's become kind of a connotation of when something, especially an inanimate object, is forgiving. It means it bends and it's it, tolerant. It's tolerant. Yeah. You know, and, and maybe it's expressing a much deeper spiritual reality of true forgiveness that you're expressing in the real Garden of Gethsemane. But that's an interesting phrase to think about that. So I guess this passage, the reason that we can see this much meaning and weight in the Mount of Olives and what happened there is because of the language of the text that basically describes Jesus in his anguish being pressed, the great drops of blood that are coming from him. This isn't just a symbolic thing, but it's actually happening. His soul and spirit is being pressed, torn between these two choices Mm -hmm. of take this cup yet not my will. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right, Daniel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's a scientific term for that. And and forgive me if I butcher it. I believe it's hematridosis. And it, it is an actual condition. And you can look it up online where the anxiety and the stress can cause people to be so visceral that drops of blood Mm -hmm. can fall Mm -hmm. from people's pores. Mm Mm-hmm. And it also suggests that one of the things in that condition is that your skin becomes incredibly thin. And Mm -hmm. so when the text describes that, you know, he knelt down and began to pray, I believe some other translations describe this, he fell to his knees, Mm -hmm. that likely in that place, he didn't just bruise, but may have even broken his skin Mm -hmm. and been bleeding in that place long before he was ever at the cross. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that would make so much sense in this passage because the weight of what Jesus is carrying in this moment is so much more than anything we could imagine. And so much that an angel comes to yeah. strengthen him from sent from the Lord. Yeah. I don't think it's just what he knows is going to happen on the cross, but it's also knowing what's going to happen in a few minutes when one of his close friends, Judas, comes. And it's what he knows is happening where all his followers who need to be praying right now because they're getting ready to go into the toughest season of their life, mm-hmm. and they're asleep. They don't have the perspective to know I need God more than I realize. Mm -hmm. Jesus is carrying all that in this moment. And this idea of his prayer, 
I mean, look at it. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not what? Yet not my will, but yours be done. Lisa, I know you've written and taught on this, this idea of being in that crux position Mm -hmm. and how to pray that prayer. What does that look like? Well, I'm so grateful for Jesus' example. He doesn't hold back. I mean, he's fully honest. Mm -hmm. Take this cup. I don't want to be separated from you on the cross in death. And yet not my will, completely abandoned and yielded. And gutsy prayer. He was pressed and he allowed the pressing to form his honest abandon. You know, he allowed it to shape him. And that's kind of the illustration of where we are in life when we are pressed that way. He expresses what we can express. (laughs) So Margaret, when we're eating olives, what do you want us to think of? (laughs) (laughs) I think when you're eating olives, I think I would love for us to think about how the olive tree is incredibly forgiving and how we can be too. (laughs) That phrase, that word would follow with us that as we learn to forgive, as we learn to follow in the footsteps of Christ as being someone who extends grace and forgives. And as we receive Christ's forgiveness, that new life will sprout in us. that encouraging thought from Margaret, we conclude a fascinating first part of this study titled Taste and See, getting a fresh perspective on food as we see it in the scriptures. It's been great to hear Margaret's stories of those encounters that have changed her understanding of food in scripture. Like we just learned there, that olive trees are a resilient and forgiving plant. Even if they're neglected and ignored, even if nobody waters them or prunes the branches, As soon as somebody does come along and start taking care of it, well, that olive tree will come alive again. And that's a powerful image of forgiveness, isn't it? And just as God forgives us, we can extend forgiveness to others. All right, well, next time we'll talk about beef and salt and bread and how table time is transformation time. Don't miss part two when Mark DeHaan, Elisa Morgan, and Daniel Ryan Day continue their conversation with Margaret Feinberg, Taste and See. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries. Music